My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. Today, I want to talk about a patient that affected both me and several of the employees at the clinic a lot. Her name was Ellen, and she was my second pediatric patient to die in Haiti. And it was a death that should never have happened. It was August, and I was working in the clinic as usual. I was in the middle of seeing patients downstairs when Miss Blanchard came in to tell me that there was a sick child outside. Now, Miss Blanchard is in charge of the nutrition program, and when she's not in the mountains, she screens all the children in the clinic for malnutrition. And we use the term malnutrition medically, but in common parlance, we would really use the word starvation. These are kids that don't have enough food to eat to continue um, their normal bodily functions. And this usually presents with one of two ways. It either presents with swelling, and, and that's kind of the classic image of the child with the swollen belly, or it comes in with wasting in which the child loses all their muscle and fat. Now, both of these are very dangerous because they make the body weak and susceptible to infection, and that's how most of these children die. On this particular day, Ms. Blanchard had been working in the open-air waiting room. A child and his mother were sitting on a bench. The child was three months old. He had a high fever, and his legs were swollen. This is a case that happens frequently. We, we see this often. The child had sepsis. And that's when the body is overcome by infection and starts to respond by raising its core temperature, trying to get rid of the virus or the bacteria, increasing the heart rate, and then later by a drop in blood pressure. As we looked at the child, it was clear the child needed to go to the hospital. And yet, the child's mother, Elisa, refused to take the child. We asked her to come to an, an examination room to discuss this just a little bit further to see what was going on. As we sat down in the office, I saw that Elisa had a large bruise over her forehead. She sat with us and explained to us that the child had not been nursed for over a month. The baby's father had told Elisa that her milk was no longer good and had forbid her to give any more milk to the child. And she added that she could not go to the hospital. Her husband would not allow it, particularly if he did not first agree before she went. Now, Ms. Blanchard and I took turns explaining the dire situation of her child. We explained that speed was essential right now. In the back of my mind, I knew that every hour that delayed treatment of sepsis increased the mortality rate significantly. Alicia, Elisa, though, was clearly terrified and frightened of her husband. She pointed to the bruise that was on her forehead, and she told us that her husband was very violent, and she just could not disobey him. Now, what ensued was a 30-minute back and forth. We tried to call her husband over and over without success. We told the mother that there, was, there were security guards at the hospital. They could protect her. And finally, we managed to convince the mother that there was no choice. I can still remember Miss Blanchard saying that the baby would be on her conscience if she died. Literally, the baby's life was in the hands of her mother. And so eventually, Elisa agreed. My driver, Smyrn, loaded the mother and the child in our car, and we drove them straight to the hospital. All along the road, we stopped for the mother to get clothes from her house because the mother would have to stay at the hospital. Smyrn walked with her back to her little cottage. Um, it was very tense. All I can think of was Elisa's husband coming home and getting violent, especially seeing Smyrn and us there 
but we were worried that the child would not get to the hospital if we did not help Elisa each step of the way. Finally, I saw Smyrn and Elisa walking out to the main road, and we zoomed back off to the hospital. That night, around 9 p.m., we received a call. Smyrn and I took it. It was the mother. She had gotten a call from her husband. He was demanding that Elisa return home. And if she did not bring the baby, the father said that he would go to Elisa's house and burn it down. And Elisa believed him. We started working the phones. Elisa did not want the police involved, but we called Elisa's father and brother. We told them that this, we told them the situation, and they said they would watch over the house. At the very least, this would provide a buffer for the father. If he tried to burn the house down, he knew that Elisa's family would seek revenge. We called Elisa. She agreed to stay in the hospital. And we convinced her brother to go to the hospital the next day and provide some moral support because it was dearly needed. The next day, we guided the brother to the hospital by text message. We were very hopeful, and I settled into my routine at the hospital. About midday, I got a call. It was Elisa again. She said matter-of-factly, she was leaving the hospital. Her brother was with her, but he had been unable to convince her at all otherwise. It seemed the threats had gotten worse and worse. I called my friend at the hospital, Donald, and he came down to talk to her. He talked with the administration to see if they could hold the baby in the hospital by force, but this was not possible. The baby's father said that he would prefer to see the baby die in front of him rather than to have the baby stay in the hospital another hour. He had given Elisa two hours to be home before he started burning things. And so Elisa left the hospital with Ellen. There was a sense of loss for Donald, for myself, for Smyrn, and for Miss Blanchard. We were at a loss for what else we could do. Without Elisa's permission, we felt we could do nothing. The next week passed in a blur of other patients and many crises. On the following Monday, though, Smyrn and I decided to check on Ellen. Perhaps, even if the mother was refusing all hospital care, perhaps she would allow us to see her and take care of her outpatient. The phone rang and rang, and we honestly expected no response. But then, Elisa did pick up, and she told Smyrn that Ellen had indeed died the week before. It seemed so emasculating. It made you feel powerless. Here was a child that should not have died. There was no reason. I do not know the child's father, and I never will. Perhaps he had a psychological issue. Perhaps it was a distrust of hospitals. Maybe it was magical thinking about the origins of disease. But even if those were involved, it is hard not to put a name to the outcome. It just feels, it just feels evil. And I mulled in my head, what more could we have done? In American medicine, we generally sit in our office and wait for patients to come to us. But we had stepped over that line, had entered into the chaotic life of Ellen and Elisa. Had we stepped over too far? Or maybe should we have stepped over further? I don't think any of us, myself, Donald, Miss Blanchard, have any good answers for this. Sometimes we see children die, and there's no great meaning or lesson. In the book Mountains Beyond Mountains, Paul Farmer calls these stupid deaths. These are the small, little tragedies that bring no greater meaning, and it can just be sad. And so we mourn for little Ellen, and we mourn that there are other children in other cities, in other nations, who die for similar stupid reasons. 
Thank you for listening. We would like you to know that we are simply telling stories as we have seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a fascinating history. And there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets, and we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you and God bless.